Welcome back to another episode of the Anonymous Third Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Chura, and today we are on part two of a conversation I started last week with New York Times bestselling author, editor of Runner's World Magazine, and someone who's been covering sports science for decades, Alex Hutchinson. In episode two, we cover a lot of the science of performance, the difference between training for shorter and longer runs, and the one product that will actually help you become a faster runner and why most products and supplements are hype. But one of the most important elements to me that we discussed today is VO2 max. I found this to be a very important metric to measure my actual fitness over the last few years. You can find this metric actually in your Apple Health or Garmin app or Polar, whatever you are using. You may want to even look at it as you watch this episode. And there's charts online that you can see how you compared your, your peers in a similar age group. And I highly suggest that you look at that. But for now, let's jump right back in with me asking Alex to define what a VO2 max is and how it ties to a longer lifespan. Can you explain what a VO2 max is and is that or is that not an important metric for just an amateur runner to, or an amateur athlete to be looking at, or someone that's just getting into fitness? Yeah, for sure. VO2 max, um, literally it means the volume of oxygen. It's the uh, volume of oxygen, VO2 max. It's, it, it is the fastest rate at which you can take oxygen from the air and get it to your muscles, which need it for aerobic metabolism. And so, at any given moment, if you're walking down the street or if you're just sitting here, you're always bringing in oxygen at a certain rate. You might be taking, let's say, a liter of oxygen per minute and, and using it in your muscles. If you exercise, the harder you exercise, the more oxygen you will use. That's why you're breathing harder and harder. But you will eventually reach a point where no matter how hard you go, you can't increase. You've reached your maximum volume of oxygen. That's your VO2 max. And it doesn't matter how hard you work, you will never get more oxygen for that. For me, it's about five liters a minute. Of, uh, of of oxygen when, um, for every minute being used. And you can measure that in the lab. You go and you do a treadmill test to exhaustion. You've got a breathing mask on your face and it's measuring how much oxygen is going in, how much oxygen is coming out, how much carbon dioxide is going in and out. And it, you can calculate that. The And what it tells you essentially, so if you want to be able to exercise for a long time, you want to be able to rely on your aerobic metabolism, which means that the you're, you're, you're using oxygen in, as part of the reaction that converts the food energy that you've eaten into ATP, into energy that makes your muscles move. And if you, if you can't get enough oxygen from the aerobic metabolism, you have to start using anaerobic metabolism, which is what you use when you sprint or lift weights, which is fine. It gives you lots of energy and it gives you energy quickly, but it produces lactate and other byproducts and eventually it makes you fatigue more quickly. So for endurance, you want to be able to use as much oxygen as possible. And the question is, so the next question is, what limits your oxygen, uh, your VO2 max? Well, you're breathing it in. You have to be able to breathe it in. Then it goes in your lungs. It has to diffuse. The oxygen has to go from your lungs into your bloodstream. And then your heart has to pump that blood from your lungs to your muscles. And then your muscles have to extract the oxygen from the bloodstream and then use it in its in that reaction. 
there's been a century of debate as to like, so where's the bottleneck? Is it that you, do you need a bigger heart? Do you need better lungs? Do you need, you know, uh, more enzymes in your muscles to get the oxygen out? And the answer is this, it's kind of, they, they all can be limiting factors under different, it's, it's, it's a system that works together. There isn't one factor. And when you train, all these things get better. Your, 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 your heart gets stronger, your muscles get better at extracting oxygen, you're able to breathe more and so on. Um, the reason it's useful is that, it's, okay, if I go out and run a mile, I'm not at my VO2 max. So it's not that the VO2 max directly limits whether you, how fast you can run a mile or a marathon or anything like that. But it's a pretty good proxy. If you have a high, higher VO2 max, you'll, you'll be able to get more aerobic energy and you'll, be, you'll have better endurance. So having an estimate of VO2 max, which is what your watch can get by, by comparing your heart rate with how fast you're moving, gives you a sense. It's kind of like telling you the size of your engine. It's saying this, this is kind of, uh, you know, if your VO2 max is 51, then you can look up some charts and it'll tell you, yeah, typically people who have a 51 VO2 max can run a marathon in such and such a time. Now, there's lots of variation, stuff we talked about earlier. There's mental stuff. There's also um, physiological stuff. How efficient are you? Some people, let's say I'm getting a certain amount of energy. Some people can run faster. It's like the fuel economy of a car. Some people can get more miles out of a given amount of energy. So, VO2 max is not the be-all and end-all, but it's a convenient way of just uh, um, not compa necessarily comparing yourself with other people, but comparing yourself with yourself. If your VO2 max is going up or staying stable, you're, that, that's a good sign. If it's going down, you're probably less fit than you were, assuming you've, you've got a good measurement. So I, I think it's useful. I think it's not hugely different from, let's say, going out and running a 5K all out once every couple months. Um, but the difference is you don't have to go, it's, you, you can get this measurement every day and you don't have to go, you know, puke in the bushes after running an all out 5k. So it's a, it's a, it's a non-invasive way of measuring. You, you want to kind of ground truth it occasionally by doing an, an all out effort and seeing how, and tracking how your progress. But it, yeah, I think it's useful as long as you can, you're sort of confident that you, you like the heart rate measurement is, is, uh, is making sense. I, th I like your point, though, in, in the sense that if you're going to rely on it more, maybe wear the heart rate monitor more often, right? That connects to the Apple Watch, connects to Garmin and Polar. And really, I need these these watches. And then for those of you who don't know, because I was talking to friends, some friends the other day at lunch, and I was surprised they didn't know what really VO2 max meant. And I'm like, check your, you know, they all had iPhones. I'm like, just check your Apple Health app. And it actually feeds it right in there. So, and I should preface this by saying you have to do, I think, for Apple to calculate it and Garmin an outdoor workout for a period of at least a half hour. So it's not like something you could just run a mile and it's going to calculate your, your VO2 max. But the way I look at it is the harder you can run or the faster where your heart rate just doesn't go completely out of whack, right? Like that's, that's kind of the, the simple gauge that I, that I use to know like, oh, okay, now I'm running uh, an eight-minute mile and my heart rate's not at 180, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, it's, it's, it's a marker that you're not going into that threshold of having to use uh, your sort of sprint, your anaerobic energy. 
uh, because that's not sustainable. So if, if you're worried about sustainable endurance, uh, being able to, yeah, not to, to sustain a pace without your body going nuts, your heart rate and other, and other things, then the VO2 max is kind of a good marker of how well you'll be able to do that. And people looking to in, improve that, one is how fast can you improve that number? That'd be my first question. And then the second one on that is, is um, does the VO2 max predict if you can finish something or not within with by still let's call it running and not walking like can a vo2 max tell you that you're not going to be able to finish a marathon in the shape you're in that's a good question so the uh, the first one was how much does it change um it it definitely changes once you've been training for a long time and then it tends to hit a stable value but um 10 or 20% change is, is definitely reasonable. If let's say you're starting from a sort of recreational fitness to, to starting a training program, then, uh, um, y- yeah, it's not gonna, it's, you, you don't go from like 30 to 80. It, it, it's, it's constrained within a pretty narrow band. Like most people, very few people are above 70, like 70 is national class athlete or better, I would say is, is uh, endurance athlete. That is, is 70 and, you know, 30 is you're, you can't make it to the store. <laughs> like you're, you're basically, uh, y- you know, sitting on one of those scooters. Um, and so most people are, are in that sort of 40 to 50 range. And if you're well-trained, maybe you're going to get above 50 or let's say high thirties. So in other words, yeah, if, if you move it up by, and we're, yeah, so the units are there. It's actually milliliters of oxygen per kilogram of body weight per minute. And and yeah, like 45, 40, depending on your age. It depends on age, depends on your sex. Um, but yeah, if, I was going to say that the chart on women is seems less. It seems like... W- women you know, have smaller less, hearts yeah. and they tend to have also, and, and I don't mean that as a dig, uh, just a, <laughs> it's a physiological, <laughs> physiological fact, they, they have, and they have less hemoglobin in their blood, which is what carries oxygen from the heart to the, to the muscles yeah. on average. So uh, even a, a very elite uh, endurance athlete, uh, a, a female endurance athlete will have a lower VO2 max than a comparable male athlete. That's, so they're just physiologically different. But yeah, if, if you can, if you, if you increase it by five, that's a, that's a big deal. But if you go from 40 to 45, that's like, an, uh, the other thing I will say about VO2 max, and I, which actually, you know, is, is important. It's one of the very, very best predictors of mortality. If you want to know, if you go into the lab or to the doctor's office and they're going to do a bunch of tests and you want to know what test is going to tell me how likely I am to live for a long time, VO2 max is an excellent, excellent proxy predictor of longevity. Um, and so if you increase your VO2 max by five, uh, I don't have the numbers at, at hand in terms of how long, how much, how many years you've added to your life in a sense, but, um, it's a good, it's good news. Like it's that, that's, that's saying something really, really important. Um, so VO2 max is, is also not just the performance wise, but health wise, it's a good measure of how well your system's working. And if, yeah, if, if you can get it up to, to change by three or five or something like that, then, then you're doing something very, very right. Now, your second question was, um, I've already blanked on it. Um, it was, can it predict if you can finish something? Yeah, yeah. So that's a great question. So VO2 max, the, 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 
the running distance that corresponds most closely to your VO2 max values, where you really have to be close to your VO2 max, is actually tends to be about 5K. Now, in my younger days, I was a 5K runner, like a miler and a 5K runner. And so I had a very high VO2 max. And if you took my VO2 vac- max values and said, how fast will this guy be able to run a marathon? It would say, this guy should be able to run a marathon in like, you know, 208 or something like that. He's going to break the Canadian record. I was not, but there was no way. I was not, I was not built to run long distances. I have a very kind of loping stride, kind of bouncy stride. I'm, I'm good at running the mile and running 5K. I'm less good at running a marathon. So VO2 max didn't capture that. All it captured was the aerobic machinery. It didn't tell me anything about whether my legs were ready to handle the pounding. And when I did run my first marathon, you know, I ran at what felt to me like a very relaxed pace. Um, and about 20 miles in, my quads just, they started just absolutely feeling like crap because I hadn't done enough long runs and I had too bouncy a stride and my shoes were too light or whatever. None, none of which had anything to do with VO2 max. So yes, VO2 max is useful, but it's not sufficient to tell you that you're ready to tackle a big challenge. There's, there's other factors, particularly just like if you're trying to go long distances and running specifically, uh, are your legs ready to stand up to the pounding for, for hours and hours? And the best, you know, there's, there's strength training you can do for that, and, but also just getting out and doing long runs. There's no, you know, there's, there's been lots of interest in the last, let's say, 15 years in high-intensity interval training, which is a very effective way of build, improving your VO2 max. And it's, it's, you know, every, every runner for the last 50 years has done lots of high-intensity interval training, but they never do just high-intensity interval training because it doesn't, it, it, it improves your VO2 max, but doesn't do as much for your legs for, for, for fatigue resistance. So you also have to do the long runs. You can't just uh, fake it by getting your VO2 max up. So looking at someone like myself that is training for the Spartan Ultra Marathon, or not, yeah, the Spartan Ultra in altitude, what are metrics or what are the readiness numbers that I should be looking at if VO2 max isn't the end all be all? So VO2 max is, is, is a useful way of, of tracking progress uh, in terms of w- one aspect of the things that will help you. But uh, time on your feet is actually a pretty simple metric I, like, I don't know do you know do you have a sense of how many hours you expect yeah, to be out there yeah someone just finished the other day in like 13 14 so i'm thinking anywhere between 12 and 15 <laughs> i know it sounds crazy i know i know, I know. positive talk positive yeah, self-talk yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's gonna be yeah. easy I'm um, visualizing yeah yeah so the thing is so that's in a range where it, it, the, the sort of usual rules of training break down after once you beyond the marathon like in a marathon it's like you know you should really get out and run at least 20 miles, maybe 22 miles before you try and run 26 miles. For an ultra marathon, it's, it's not really like logical. Like if you're preparing for a 24 hour race, it's not like, and every Saturday you should go out and run 22 hours because you're going to kill yourself that way. Or at least you're not going to, you're not going to be optimally prepared. You're going to be exhausted because each training session is going to take too much out of you. That said, you need to, you need to have, you need to spend time on your feet. You need to get out there. One, one common thing that's done in ultra marathon training, not everyone does it, but one common thing is uh, back-to-back long runs, uh, like on one weekend, you'll go out and you'll run, you know, for three hours at an easy pace one day and for four hours the next day or something like that. Um, sounds, the the idea is it's not, it's not going to be the same as doing a seven hour run, but it's going to force your, force you to be out there on tired legs without completely 
demolishing your your ability to train in the you know for the following week. So so I think just ability to be out there for a for a long time, not for twelve hours, but for for multiple hours, uh, is a you know a big factor. Um, uh, at least it, I, I would think so. And of course, Spartans have other challenges in, in them too that you have to, to you know consider separately. But um, yeah, I think I think that that's where I would draw confidence from is like yeah, I was out there for X number of hours, and it's twice as long as I was able to be out there three months ago or whatever. So as, as far as uh, going back to the VO2 max for a second to close that out, as far as in, improving your VO2 max, if you're someone listening to this, you're looking at your health app like I recommended, you're disappointed and you want to improve it, especially since you tie that to a good predictor of living a longer life, which I think is a great thing to say and, and associate because no matter where we're at, it's good to get a base and it's good to measure that over time. But how can people improve that is it is it truly running can you improve it with high intensity interval training can you improve it with weight training is it all of the above i know you have uh you have a strength training program that that you do i'm not sure how much you do you do hit now but how important are all those to the vo2 max or is it all cardio yeah so there's a i I wish i could remember the name there's one of those sort of rules or laws of thumb that once once uh, once a metric becomes a, an outcome or a target variable, it ceases to be a good metric. So it's kind of like you start teaching to the test. So if you focus on trying to imp- increase your VO2 max, then you'll fall into the trap we were just talking about, which is, okay, you're, you're doing the things that specifically increase your VO2 max, uh, which is going to look good, but it's not going to necessarily be the same things that will optimize your performance in, let's say, in a, a, you know, a Spartan Ultra. So I, I would be cautious about, I would say VO2 max is a good thing to measure to assess your progress without focusing on specifically trying to improve your VO2 max. You, you, I think there are other, I mean, it's not a terrible goal, but in your case, for example, I would say your goal is to prepare for a Spartan Ultra, not to raise your VO2 max. And v, the VO2 max should, should come up uh, depending on where you're starting. Like if, if, you, if you're already fit enough, you may not see a huge change, but it should be a byproduct of, the, of your, of, of pursuing your actual goal, as opposed to making it the, as opposed to confusing the proxy goal with the actual goal. So having said all that, if you, the best ways to incru, improve VO2 max, um, according, you know, it, it, the, it's not like a, an exact science, but according to the review, reviews of the literature, the, the the optimal workout to improve VO2 max is something like repeated intervals of three to five minutes long with a couple minutes rest. So let's say you would do, for example, um, five times five minutes as hard as you can with two minutes of easy jogging or walking uh, between those five-minute reps. That will optimize the amount of time you spend Going back to this idea that 5K pace is kind of VO2 max pace, that will optimize the amount of time you spend close to your VO2 max. That's like the gold standard. Now, if you just go out and run, let's say you go out and run for an, for 45 minutes, three, four, five times a week, whatever, that will also increase your VO2 max. And if you go out and run like classic, like high intensity interval stuff, like let's say you do 30 seconds on the bike as hard as you can and then spin easy for four minutes and do that four to six times, 
that will also increase your VO2 max. So anything from short intervals to long, easy runs will increase your VO2 max with the, the sort of sweet spot being in that like five minute interval range as hard as you can. But that's, I say that, that you know, just I'll repeat the, the caveat that that doesn't mean you should go and do all your training as five minute intervals because your goal isn't to win the five minute interval contest. It's, it's to, to, to do the ultra marathon. In terms of strength training, I would say it, it doesn't make a meaningful contribution to uh, VO2 max. Now, if you do nothing but strength training when you do it as high intensity circuits so that you're, you know, keeping your heart rate up, it can have an effect, but basically it, it's, for the most part, the, the goals of resistance training are different. They're important for, for performance. They're important for overall health and, you know, longevity, but and specifically in the context of, of like endurance and, and running and stuff, one thing resistance training does for you is it, it improves your efficiency. So we were talking before about VO2 max is, is good, but you may also have differences in the sort of fuel economy of your car kind of stuff. Resistance training helps to optimize the signaling from your brain to your muscles. So it, it, it helps to improve your, the fuel economy of your, of, your, of your motions, whether it's running or cycling or other motions. So resistance training is important, but it's not going to be captured by, by VO2 max. If you had to go back and, and train differently, knowing what you know now with all the research you've done, would you do anything differently? Yeah, I think about this question a lot and, you know, and sometimes to the point of like flipping through old training logs and it's like, ah, you know, you, you, you can see in, in the training logs like, oh man, I was so fit here. Oh, oh, turn the page like, oh, I got hurt the next, ah, oh, idiot, you know, and it, it, um, so what, and sometimes it's tempting to think like, oh my God, if only I'd known I shouldn't have been wearing those shoes or I shouldn't have done that workout or I should have done more of that other workout. When I really like think carefully about it and try and recapture where my heads headspace was, I generally come to the conclusion that it's like, you know what? As much as I know way more about training now than I did twenty years ago when I was at my sort of running peak, I wasn't. An, it's not like we were, you know, banging rocks together and wondering whether that was gonna, <laughs> you know, like what is this fire thing? We. <laughs> we, we kind of knew what was going on. We understood it's all fundamentally, it's a balance between if you want to, if you want to achieve something athletically, it's like you want to work as hard as you possibly can without getting hurt or burnt out. And you're always trying to walk on that razor's edge. And, and, you know, a few times for me, unfortunately with bad timing, I, I walked over the edge and ended up injured at, at, at very inopportune times. So all of that is to say that as much as I know way more about the physiology of training, if I was going to change one thing, and you know we alluded to this earlier, it would actually be to to focus more on the on the mental side and to to not to try and do actually you know not to just sort of assume that I could tough tough it out myself, but to to you know read some books or talk to to someone who who really understands this stuff to work with me on, cause, you know self talk for sure. I also had issues with um, you know I had nerve. I, I found when I had, when there were low expectations on me, I raced extremely well, but sometimes when that would create higher and higher expectations, it would get in a cycle until I got to the point where I was just sort of pathologically nervous before races. And, uh, I wish I could fix that partially because, you know, I think I would have run a lot faster and also because it wasn't a lot of fun to be a competitive athlete where, you know, I was going, I would raced around the world. I, I remember I spent a week in Sicily, uh, 
preparing for a, a big race and you know beautiful beautiful place i sat in my hotel room like 24 hours a day staring at the wall just going talking about this idea of visualizing like visualizing but in a very scared and panicked way of like was i going to screw this up would i do it the way i wanted to it's like you know what i, I don't think that helped my performance and it also wasn't a lot of fun to be just you know pathologically nervous so yeah the, the mental side i think is where for me me personally i i, I could have picked up some some uh I could have used some some magic time machine help from future me. And someone not interested in necessarily competing or pushing themselves hard, but they want to exercise for longevity. What's the minimal amount? I know you've written articles on this. I know you've done a ton of research, but just, just to share that, what you found, the minimal amount of exercise to get the maximum, maybe not maximum, but optimal benefits. Yeah. (laughs) So there's no magic answer, but I would say, so for starters, just to give context, the, the sort of national guidelines in most places around the world, they suggest 150 minutes of moderate exercise a week. So that's like 30 minutes a day, five times a week. That is, if you're doing that, you're, you're in business and especially, you know, that, and that's like aerobic exercise, add a little bit of strength you're, 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 you're doing better than, you know, 80% of the population. Um, more recently, there's been research that shows that actually you can get some pretty substantial benefits with less. Like if you're doing like 10 minutes of exercise a couple times a week, you're, you are moving the needle. So there is, it, there's no like, it's pointless to do, um, to, to do that little. It's like a 10 minute walk is something important. Uh, and I did I actually wrote about a study that was, it was pretty cool. It was a, it had 7,000 people in it over the course of a number of years who did strength training just once a week for 20 minutes. It was one of these super slow protocols. So they're doing just one set of each exercise, moving slowly so they reach failure after four to six reps. And they saw like 50% gains in strength over the case of over the course of a, uh, you know, a year or two. So it's like, and that, that goes back to this idea of like, you want to get strong. And so you're like, I'm going to do four workouts a week, leg day and, you know, back day and all that. this. And six months later, you're like, oh, this is tiring. And I tweaked my back and, and I haven't seen any progress. You're much better off with like one day a week, 20 minutes is not going to max out your gains by any stretch of the imagination. But if you stick with that for two years, you're gonna, it's like, you know, 50% increases is, is nothing to sneeze at. So and, and there's been similar research with running where it's like looking at big cohorts of like, if you're running like, you know, 10 minutes a day, three times a week, something like that, you're going to see pretty substantial gains. In fact, that's like the biggest gains are going from nothing to something. You're going to see more if you do a little bit more. But yeah, I, yeah, I guess I'm sort of all over the map here. But what I would say is whatever you can do find that you will do and that you will stick with and it fits into your life and it's not miserable um that's gonna have a big uh, if you that's that's gonna be more important than like optimizing am i doing should i be doing this high intensity or low intensity or this or that or this you know this magic machine it's like find something active you can do uh and stick with it for the long period long haul that's great personally i think there's a lot to be said for even just once a week if you push yourself a bit, get out of breath, you know, uh, um, uh, you kind of go to the well a little bit, but 
it's not essential. That's just, I mean, it's, it's something that I find rewarding and I think it has disproportionately large like health benefits. But if you want to do a brisk walk uh, three, four times a week, that's going to be fantastic. Yeah. I, I personally find it when you can get a sweat and you're building up enough to achieve a sweat, then the post-workout is so much more fulfilling because you know you put in the effort to make your body work that much harder. Yeah, and so like 100%, for me, it's like, if, I, when I, if I'm super busy and I have to miss some workouts, the one, the one thing, I, Saturday mornings for me is a hard run with some friends where it's like, it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortably hard. And that's just so rewarding for me. Now, the, the thing, the sort of classic danger in, the, in, in health reporting in general is that people who write about exercise science and workout advice, they tend to be people like me who, for whatever quirk of physiology or psychology or being dropped on the head as a kid, enjoy that feeling, that satisfaction of, of I did, yeah, you know, I, I went to the well today. I worked hard and I'm super satisfied. I love that. And so I try and, I, I try and share that with other people, but I also try and keep in mind that everyone's wired, wired differently and, and not everyone, I don't know, maybe everyone could get a kick out of it if they, if they got to the, the right headspace or whatever. But, um, I, 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 I've, I've tried to become more aware of the fact that there's, there's different, everyone's different. And so some people may find it, uh, that that's, that's not worth it to them. But for me, it's like, yeah, just like you said, the, the satisfaction of, uh, of, of having worked hard, it, it, it's, it's, uh, that, that, that moment, the five minutes after the workout ends is like the best part of my day. Yeah. Dave, you were on Peter Attia's show recently and the one, it, by the way, you were great on there as well. And you're, there's so much information that you deliver, just like in your book, there's more, I don't want to say it, it, it's dense in a good way. Like there, like <laughs> there's just so much good content in there. The one fact that I couldn't believe with the older demographic and they were strength training, and then there was a segment of them that went on bed rest for, I think, a week or 10 days and how much muscle that they lost. And I noticed that when I just, you know, if I'm, I work out every day, but if I go on a vacation and I come back, you can, you can tell quickly, especially with strength training, how much you can lose very quickly. I'd love for you to explain that study a little bit. How fast can you get that muscle back? The fact that you've gained it, is it easier to get it back quicker? Yeah, a couple of interesting things in there. So yeah, for one, th this was an anecdote that I heard from a, a guy named Luke Van Loon, who's a, a researcher in the, the Netherlands. And he had spent like, I don't know, six months and a ton of resources doing supervised strength training with with older adults, trying to see, can we get them to put on muscle? And they had this huge success where it's like, yes, after we worked so, so hard. And after six months, they put on, I can't remember what it was, you know, three, four pounds of muscle. And then the same day those results came in, he had another study and his student came back and said, hey, we got the results from the study. The people who were one week of bed rest, and they lost like twice as much of that muscle. So they lost it way faster like you you lose if you're not moving at all if you're doing what we're doing here sitting in our chairs all, all day um you you lose muscle uh extremely quickly 
and you and, and that's muscle you have to work so hard to get back. Now, to your to your last question, um, is it easier to get muscle back after you've had it before? The answer is yes. Th- th- this is some you know it's pretty interesting research uh, in the last let's say ten years. This idea of muscle memory. Do, do your muscles remember that they used to be bigger, and so they're they're ready to go back to that? And it turns out, uh, you know, and I'm not an expert in in muscle physiology, but basically, when you uh, when you put on muscle, you have to your muscle fibers get bigger, but you also grow new muscle fibers, and and when you grow a new muscle fiber, you have to produce what's called a satellite cell, which is basically the the uh, nucleus of a new muscle fiber. When you lose muscle, the muscle fibers shrink. And in some cases disappear, but the nucleuses don't go away. Those those, those new nucleuses you you produced stay for years, and so that makes it much easier for them to expand again and 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 form the the, the center of a of a new muscle cell when you put on weight. So that is a f- a relatively new physiological explanation for the observed fact that people who have had muscle can put it back on. Because it's tricky when you do these studies, right? Like, because if, if, if you find a bunch of people who have muscle. It may just be that they're the type of people who put on muscle easily compared, you know, so, but now they have, so, so it was never quite clear whether this was a real phenomenon or just sort of a, uh, a fluke, but it does appear that, yeah, if you've had muscle, you'll have an easier time putting it back on, but it will never be as easy as it is to lose that muscle. So you were kind of on, stuck on that treadmill and you, anytime you get off the treadmill, you're, you're losing ground. And how important is strength training for balance that you want to achieve, longevity, prevent osteoporosis, uh, mental health, all of those things. Yeah. I mean, this, this is the topic of, of endless debate. It's like, okay, let's compare strength training to endurance training, see who lives longer, see who improves their sort of proxy marker, markers of longevity. Um, I, I come at it from a biased perspective. I'm a, I'm a very skinny runner. Um, so I, I, I tend to think that if you had to do one probably the best thing to do would be endurance training. But none of us has to do just one. They're both, they're both important and they achieve different goals. And so for me, um, you know, not to jinx myself, but my VO2 max is as high as it needs to be. And, I, and my, my lifestyle habits such that, you know, I enjoy running every day. I don't, I, 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 I've, I've maxed out the benefits I can, more or less, I can get from aerobic training. But there are a lot of reasons that it would be beneficial for me to have more muscle and more strength. Uh, there are some very simple, obvious ones that if I'm if I'm weak now and everyone loses muscle as they get older, you know, all, all, all else being equal, then just being able to, you know, when I'm in my 70s or 80s or beyond, get out of a chair, go do shopping, change a light bulb, get out of a bathtub, all these things get harder and harder, and it's it's. A lot of people, their ability to live independently is limited by the fact that they're just not strong enough to do the things that they need to be able to do. So that's and that and then if you lose the ability to live independently, then um, or to to do these things, then you're 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 pretty quickly on a downward slide um, to, towards uh, you know earlier mortality. Um, but there's also other reasons. You, you know, muscle is a good tissue in terms of uh, controlling your blood sugar and stuff. And these things are not maximized just by by endurance training. So yeah, I, 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 if I had to pick one aerobic training, other people would, would say completely opposite, but th- the truth is that's a false choice. Uh, they're, they're both important and you can't get everything from one that you would get from the other. So there's, 
I mean, okay, maybe again, maybe with like some sort of crazy circuit strength program, you could get it that that it's somehow getting both. But for the most part, you need to be doing something aerobic and you need to be doing something uh, resistance oriented. The precise balance, I don't think you need to stress too much about it. Some people enjoy doing three hour bike rides. Some people enjoy pumping iron. It's great just as long as you're not 100% exclusive at one end of the spectrum. So a minimum, it, do what you enjoy. Make sure you can be consistent over a long period. You can have a lot of benefits by doing a little. You don't have to kill yourself. You don't have to train for endurance races like like we do, um, mostly you. <laughs> um, yeah. Does does anything else help? I know you've reported on, and I, in your book you were talking about the halo and some other some other gadgets over time for I, I, everything. I know you've wrote about like ice baths, um, different sorts of diets, heat therapy. Does, and I know the answer is nothing makes up for the miles, but does anything help? Is anything out there on the market? Yeah. I, you know, I, I this is another place where I've, you know, traveled a journey over the years to being much more skeptical about all that stuff, um, about virtually everything, even about the details of workouts. You know, it's like, does it matter whether you're doing 10 by one minute or five by two minutes or whatever? It's like, and you know, this, this is like, it's almost a religious debate among, you know, runners. What's the right way to work out? And, 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 you know, should you use your nomadic compression legging and your, your ice bath and, and your, you know, your beet juice. Um, there are things that have an effect. There are things that, that you can measure the benefits of, for example, creatine for, for strength training, uh, beet juice for endurance athletes, caffeine for just about anything enhances performance. Um, the effects are small, really small, and they don't tend to add up. It's like you, you do a study that's like, okay, caffeine gives you 1%, uh, beet juice gives you 1%. Let's put them together. Caffeine plus beet juice gives you 1%. What the heck? So it gets to be tricky to figure out, like, yes, there's physiology. If you're training to win the Olympics, uh, these things might matter. If you're training to beat personal bests, you know, there's no law that says that just because you're not at the Olympics, you, you're not allowed to care about half a percent or one percent, right? Like, so I, I don't want to be dismissive and say that if you're not at the Olympics, you should not be doing anything. Like, it can be fun to to just to pursue the ultimate, your ultimate limits, to, or such as they seem to be. But the truth is, I've much more come to believe that a lot of these things are mediated by belief, by, you know, the new coaches' workouts work better because you believe that they will. The, uh, the ice bath makes you feel better because, well, I mean, it feels different. It, 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 uh, sitting in an ice tub has a feeling for sure. Like it's not, it's not just nothing. Does it make you recover better? The evidence is extremely, extremely mixed and weak. But if it, if it, if sitting in an ice bath after every workout makes you feel like you're an animal and you're going to be able to get at the workout the next day, then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. 
So yeah, look, I can't, I'm not dismissing everything. Some things do work, but it's, man, it, the, the, if you're like, what's the size of the cake and what's the size of the icing? It's like, it's, it's a big cake and not a lot of icing. And the cake is just like getting out there, training hard, recovering well, eating well, which is a, you know, another controversial topic, of course. But um, yeah, the, the extra stuff is not 100% bad or wrong or anything. It's just a lot less than we tend to, 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 to than the amount of attention we tend to give it. There's so much more that I want to dive into, but the one piece of equipment that I know I've heard you talk and and uh, write about over time was the, the Nike Vaporfly. And now that came out in 2016, kind of changed things. And uh, and again, hearing you on other podcasts, just it's it's pretty interesting that nothing in that shoe is very like you know new, but the way they kind of put it all together was certainly a um a benefit to, to Nike and its runners and uh and the ability to use that shoe to um beat a, a two hour marathon for the first time uh in in of course the most I- idealistic conditions but was that um was that a complete shock to you when that happened and were you you know knowing that you were you're so skeptical and you should be over the years of, of being, um, I don't want to say let down, but, but people promising things. All of a sudden Nike comes out with this and promises this shoe is going to make someone faster. And you're probably like, yeah, you know, there's no way that that's possible. Yeah. You, you, you hit the nail on the head. It's like, it, it, those shoes work. There's, there's no d- doubt about it. Those shoes do not, cont- and like you said, they, they don't contain any, any magic ingredient. It's not like there's a little rocket in them, and it's not like there's a spring in them. There's their components, a, a carbon fiber plate and thick fo- uh, midsole foam that have been in shoes for, for years, if not decades. Um, but they work. And, and, the, and like you said, it's like I, my internal state of mind is exactly what I was just saying in answer to your previous question, which is that none of this stuff really matters. It doesn't matter. Shoes don't matter. Like... People, every year, every shoe company comes out with a new line of shoes and they're like, this is going to revolutionize your relationship with running. I don't even read those press releases. Like I don't, I don't pay attention to them because I've been getting them ever since I started writing about, but, and you know, I remember them as an athlete and be, oh, this is the new such, such and such shoes. Like whatever, those shoes don't really make a difference. And then these shoes did. These shoes were a complete shock. And, and it's it's kind of interesting to 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 note, it's like, there have been a thousand products that have claimed to make a difference of the size that the, the shoe Nike shoes make, and 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 people still argue about whether those things work. Things like electric brain stimulation, but we kind of know that they don't really work that well because they haven't upended the sport. The Nike shoes came in and they really did people make people you know one one to two percent faster. The entire sport has been upended. Every world record has been set. Uh, people are like furious, angry. We don't know what the future of the sport is. That's what happens when something actually gives you a one percent aid. So next time you get a press release that's like this, uh, you know, th- th- this pill or this uh, fancy, you know, calf stretching gadget is going to improve your performance by two percent. It's like, yeah, I'll, I'll wait and see. And uh, it, you know, it'll be all over the headlines if it actually does work. So that was a, that was a really interesting thing for me to, to to see. It's like, oh, this is what happens when. For once in a lifetime, the press release turns out to be true, and it opens up a whole lot of questions 
it's really tough questions about, okay, so what does this mean? Leaving aside, okay, let's say we're not worried about they were cheating or anything. We're just worried about like, there's a shoe that makes people faster. Do we allow this shoe or do we make some rules against it? What is, is it, is it meaningful to wear the shoe? Okay, forget about wearing the Olympic. In the Olympics, let's say everyone's wearing the shoe, so now it doesn't matter anymore. Let's say you've been dreaming of qualifying for Boston or breaking a three-hour marathon for 10 years, and now all of a sudden you can just put on a pair of shoes and it's going to get you those last couple minutes. Is that satisfying? I mean, on one hand, you'd say, well, of course not. No, you, you want to do it yourself. On the other hand, it's like, actually, I would bet if you take, you know, 100 people who had run a 302 marathon last year, put them in the shoes and have them run 259 and ask them if they're happy, they're happy. Like, you know, even if you, you would think they shouldn't be, it's like, oh, I feel guilty because it's just, no, they're happy because they ran a 259. So it's, it really forces us to think carefully about what is meaningful about sport and why do we do it? And I don't, I'm not asking those, as, I'm not, I don't mean to make those questions sound off, uh, obvious because I have wrestled with it too. It's like, I don't know, like what you want to run that time, but you, you want to do it fair. You want to be on an equal footing to everyone else. Why, so why wouldn't I, I, I mean, it, it, it's created a really interesting moment of soul searching in, in the relationship between sport and technology. Yeah, it's, it's certainly fascinating. And I, and I'd love your, uh, your take on it and that you, you were there and you, you were one of what, two reporters that actually witnessed the attempt at the first world record. I know is uh, I know it was pretty close, but all of that is super fascinating. Um, but I guess it just kind of boils down to that's not going to make those shoes aren't going to make me finish the Spartan ultra any faster <laughs> than I would have. And if it comes it, down to putting the miles in, you know, yeah, that's if the Spartan work. ultra was on roads, then they might make you finish a little bit faster. And especially like the, the interesting, you know, one of the interesting wrinkles is those shoes aren't just faster because they have the thick foam. They're a little easier on the legs, at least according to anecdotal report. So mm -hmm. for a super long race, they might have your legs feeling a little less shredded, but if you're on sort of cross country terrain, that's a, that's a different question. So you may be, uh, you may be stuck with the old technology. Well, if, uh, if Nike's uh, listening to this and they want to, they want a beta tester for a uh, a mountain terrain version, I'm totally down. <laughs> you'd be willing to o overlook your 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 scruples to give it a try. Yeah, that's right. If there was, uh, I guess, in closing, I'm just fascinated because this this book again is so good and filled with so many great stories of. Uh, everything from fuel to pain to everything else, like the story we kind of just talked about. And I know we don't have time to get into a ton, but one thing I was thinking afterwards, because it was written a few years back, I know this was the culmination of, of a decade plus of writing, um, a few decades of being a runner, qualifying for the Olympics. And it's, I don't want to see your life's work, but it's a lot in here. So I don't even want to dare ask you if you're going to write another book, what would it be? But if you were going to extend this and write another chapter or two, what would those chapters be? So first, I should just clarify for the sake of record, I did not qualify for the Olympics. I, I ran at the Olympic trials for Canada. Ah, I, uh, got it. I finished ninth there. So, um, That's yeah. still pretty amazing. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. And, and uh, I'll, I'll be honest for the last, the, the, the first edition of the book came out in 2018 and ever, it's been three years now and I'm still like, 
what comes next? Because it's not easy. It's not just like, oh, well, let's pick something I'm interested in and, and spend another 10 years. It's like, because that, that book really was a lifetime's worth of thinking and work. So it's hard, it's hard to find something else that I'm as passionate about. I mean, if I was going to extend that, I think, you know, in, what was probably most missing from the book is, okay, we now understand that limits are, uh, you know, the, the physical limits are really just warning signs and it's ultimately the brain. How do we actually, in practice, change them? And I, I, I go into a little bit of this stuff in the book. Like I do have, you know, like you said, I have chapters on brain stimulation and I talk about self-talk a little bit, but I don't get into the nuts and bolts of how you actually get, get into the, the, the practice of implementing this in your life, not just to run a, uh, you know, a faster marathon, but in, in other aspects of your life. So I think, I think the actual implementation science would be an interesting extra chapter or two in the book. There's, there's a, a term I came across recently, the, the GI Joe fallacy. Uh, when I was a kid, the GI Joe cartoons would always end with a, a public service announcement saying, you know, Oh, you know, uh, you know, G.I. Joe, thanks for showing me that I shouldn't stick my finger in the electric socket. And G.I. Joe would say, now you know, and knowing is half the battle. And so the G.I. Joe fallacy is thinking that just because you know something, that's the same as implementing it. And I think that's where kind of where I got stuck and maybe left left the book. It's like, now we know limits are in your head and we know that there's some things you can do to fix them. But it's like, okay, but how do you actually do the work of working on your self-talk, of thinking about visualization, of, you know, enhancing confidence, all these sorts of things. So, yeah, that's, that's where I think there's, there's a little bit of work left to be done. What's something that we, we didn't cover in our conversation today of an action item that someone can take regarding kind of the mental side of breaking through these barriers? A really simple one is facial expression. The, the, there was some just some fascinating research on even just subliminally showing pictures of smiling faces or frowning faces uh, to to cyclists change their endurance. If you see a, a smiling face, you're just feeling better about things and you're more likely to, to, to be willing to keep pushing. And that extends to uh, if you alter your facial expression, and this is something coaches have been saying for 50 years at least, you know, relax your face. But in the last few years, there have been some studies where it's like, okay, try running. We're going to measure your efficiency. Now smile, now frown, now just relax your face. And amazingly, it's like you, you get 2% more efficient when you're smiling. And, and I know just for me in practice, what I've found is I, I, I'm not a big smiler, but it's like I found when I'm running and I think also when I'm like thinking and, and other stuff, I just tend to be a, a sort of grimace or a, it's like I'm, it's almost sort of performative. I'm showing people how hard I'm, I'm working. But the problem is I, I, I believe the hype, you know, I'm showing people how hard I'm working and then I feel like I'm working hard. Whereas if I then just relax my face. Uh, all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, I'm feeling okay. Yeah. It's not as bad. So yeah, just, just being aware of simple cues like facial expression can, can just alter how it feels. That's great advice. It's, I'm smiling because in, uh, so I spent some time in California near the Lake Tahoe area and out there when you're running, at least where I run out there, everyone waves to one another and I'm waving. And then I come back out here in the Chicago area and I'm running and Everyone I see, I wave to my wife's like, why are you, why are you waving to everyone? We're not in California anymore. And I'm like, why, why can't I wave to people? And I, and most like 50% of the people will wave back. And then the rest kind of look at me like I'm some weirdo and it just makes me smile. It makes me laugh and it makes the run easier just because I know I'm just going to try and wave to everyone. And the people that smile back, it just like, it just brightens your day a, a little bit. So those listening or 
watching this, uh, the next time you see a runner that smiles at you, smile back because you never know how it could affect their run in their day. That, that's totally true. And it is funny, the, the, the running cultures of different places. And, you, you know, when, you, when, you, when you're a mismatch, when you're, the, you're in your own world, then you realize, oh, everyone's smiling at me. I should be waving back versus like when you're out there trying to like give, give a, a nod and a smile or whatever. I've, I've sort of worked on my subtle nod that just looks like a facial tick unless you're watching for it. It's like, yeah. was he nodding? I'm not really sure. So if, if they ignore me, I don't feel quite so silly. Well, this was a great conversation, Alex. I can't thank you enough. And uh, I look forward to look forward to reading more articles from you. Look forward to if you extend the book into other chapters at some point and just just following you. I've I've learned a ton just by the book and uh and by everything that you've produced that that I've read and that includes uh publications and your own blog and various other things. But uh again, it was fantastic to spend the time today. Well, thanks, Joe. I really appreciate the conversation and I, I love the, the title of the podcast because it really captures so much. <laughs> so thanks for having me. Whoa, what an amazing episode. I have to say that was pretty stellar and Alex Hutchinson is just an incredibly intelligent individual and I can't thank you enough, Alex, for being my guest on the show today and all the knowledge that you dropped. What I really love is the tie between VO2 max and longevity in life. And I can tell you that if you're listening to this and if you're discouraged by your number or maybe you're even excited that you have a high number, don't let that get to you. Just look at it as a baseline one way or another and an opportunity to either improve or maintain. No matter where where you are at, you can always get better or you could always at least maintain it. Because I can tell you that over the last few years when I had looked at my number, it's improved by at least 10 points, which just makes me feel better about the balance I have in my workouts. And, and you could kind of feel it when you are doing more cardio over time it becomes easier and that's really what it comes down to. So whether you're relying on that metric or you are looking at just how fast you can complete a 5K, either one of those is a good barometer into your fitness levels. And just remember, again, no matter where you are at, you can improve. The other thing I really loved about this episode is how we tied the ending together back to the performance mindset side of things and how the emotions of someone smiling make just a big difference and I could tell you anecdotally that is very true whether you're overwhelmed you're stressed out just a smile or just seeing someone that's smiling or even watching a comedy whatever it is that can get you laughing will make things a lot better I absolutely appreciate you for watching or listening to today's episode Please share it, forward it to a friend if you think it will be helpful or a family member. It means the world to me. Next week, I have a very special guest, Chad Wright, that I can't wait to uh, to launch this one as well. Just, again, more on the mindset side of things. And you'll hear about Chad's story as a Navy SEAL and some of the things that he's overcome in his life. But we dive deep again into a lot of great topics. Until then, remember, of course, you, we, me, are not almost there.